Slimesters and Gagoids, I am your Slimetastic co-host Alex from Splat Attack, and I have a bit of a disclaimer before this episode starts. Three things. One, we had a lot of connection issues when we were doing this episode, and it's a bit obvious because we are talking about the same thing, but you can hear a total shift very abruptly. Even though we're talking about the same thing, there is a shift, and we would just try to pick up right where we left off when the established connection so that is uh, a bit obvious uh, the other is our guest was all the way from sydney australia which is amazing because for us we're here in the states and um for three o'clock in the afternoon for him was like two o'clock in the morning for us uh, it was a very very late night for brett and i and especially if you watch my footage I, you, you can tell my eyes were getting very baggy and very tired by the end of the night. Uh, so, to save our guest's time, we try to get all the question portions out of the way for him, uh, because we did have some scheduling issues uh, trying to get things lined up, especially with such a different time gap. So, we tried to get the question portion done for him first, and then go into our narration with a conversation between Brett and I. I tried to edit them together as much as I could, so that way you'd hear the narration, and then a quick Q&A with our guest, and then the narration, uh, which is what we normally do for our episode reviews. But this time, it didn't quite flow as well. Uh, you can definitely tell a tonal shift, uh, but the content is still there, so I'm going to try... Hopefully, whenever we watch this, you'll it'll flow a little easier than the first draft that I put together. But just know that this is why it sounds this way. And for the third thing, and it's a it's very unflattering, and I apologize to you, and especially my wife. Uh, as you can see behind me, I put this together in our bedroom, and again, it was two o'clock in the morning, and was trying to sleep, and about uh, three-fourths into the episode, you can hear her snoring, and there's nothing I can do to take the audio out. I, I can take the audio out, but you'll also take the audio out of my voice out with the software that we use, so I'm very sorry you're, you'll hear a bit of my lovely wife snoring, and she normally does not snore like that. She, she was very, very tired. It was a very long day, so... My apologies. So, with all of these out of the way, this is what I hope to um, blend together as best as I can to make the episode as fun as possible. So, just so you know going into it. So, disclaimers out of the way. Get ready for some Tomorrow People. Lifetime on the Tomorrow People. Yep. I'm scared. What's happening to me? My hand. It's completely healed. Adam, how'd you do that? Ordinary kids discovered they had superpowers. Teleport, Lisa, teleport! And tomorrow, Nickelodeon's first epic sci-fi adventure continues. What would the CIA want to do with us? Lisa, think about it. I mean, we're telepathic. We can teleport. We've got a visitor. Heaven! You can't miss part two of The Tomorrow People. Tomorrow at 7, 6 central, only on Nickelodeon. Submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society. Oh, joy! Let's rock! It makes me wanna fight! Dear Journal, it's me, Doug. Do you have it? A baby's gotta do what a baby's gotta do. <gasps> that was a hoop! 
On your mark. Get set. Oh, here it goes. Welcome to Splat Attack, where we're taking it back to the slime-filled past. I'm your Gakarific co-host, Brett. And I am your slime-tastic co-host, Alex. And Brett, we've had a lot of really, really cool guests on our show. But did you know that our guest today has special powers? He does. I found out just a few moments ago that he teleported right into our studio. So, um, you know, without belaboring anything, let's introduce our special guest today, Christian Smid, who plays Adam Newman on The Tomorrow People. Thank you very much for having me. Um, it's been several years since I've teleported, so I was concerned. <laughs> I was concerned how I was going to uh, reconfigure when I arrived. Well, it looks like you still got it after all these years. <laughs> Brett, you want to give us a quick introduction of the Tomorrow People? Exactly. Yeah, I'll definitely do that for you guys. Because um, believe it or not, it's got quite a bit of history. But, you know, just to keep things brief and interesting, I'll uh, go over the quick bits for all you Slimesters and Gakoids. Uh So for those who are old enough to rem remember the series, the Tomorrow People is a bit of an odd bird amidst the gamut of Nickelodeon shows in the early to mid-90s. Most shows, aside from a small handful of Nicktoons, dealt with real kids experiencing real everyday problems in their own kid-like way at the time. Shows such as Clarissa Explains It All, Welcome Freshmen, and Salute Your Shorts highlight the relatable experience to kids, while other shows like Roundhouse, All That, and Are You Afraid of the Dark venture into other territories like sketch comedy and horror anthology. This leaves Tomorrow People lingering somewhere in the middle, where the main characters deal with everyday problems, but with extraordinary telepathic powers aiding them thus edging the genre and the show into serial sci-fi territory, something akin to Buck Rogers' Space Patrol or Tales of Tomorrow, which are popularized in the 1950s. This isn't the first time The Tomorrow People has made its mark on television either. Believe it or not, The Tomorrow People existed about 20 years prior on British television in the 1970s, with a much different feel and format with its serial-based stories. Despite each version's differences, both the original and what is considered the 90s revival series were both created and overseen by Roger Price, so there is still a thread of familiarity among both iterations. However, due to pressure from corporate execs in the 90s, the format has been adjusted to appeal to both a wider international audience, while also targeting a slightly younger demographic in a tabula rasa approach. The end result is a series comprising of five five-part miniseries arcs per storyline, following the ventures of Adam, Megabyte, Kevin, Lisa, Amy, and Jade, as they battle various villains who want to take over the world, each with their own unique dastardly agendas, all while keeping their psychic powers only known to their group, save for a few allies who befriend and help them along the way. Today, we look at the first five-part story arc of the overall series, simply known as The Tomorrow People, the origin story. Multiple sources cite variations of this miniseries arc's title ranging from the beginning to the show's title itself. For the sake of this review and with the iteration intention to cover all five miniseries arcs down the road, we'll be referring to this episode as simply the origin story. If you'd like more information on the precursor to the Tomorrow People series that actually aired on BBC in the 70s and was later ported to Nickelodeon in the early 80s, I defer you to Paparina's Knickknacks episode number 22 for an up-close examination of the franchise as a whole. Greg is a very thorough researcher, and I cannot recommend his 90s Nick content enough for curious minds among the 90s Nick community. Before we begin this epic episodic review, 
Alex or Christian, is there anything your view would like to add or mention? Well, you did mention that it was uh, set up by a guy called Roger Price. Um, an interesting point, and I'm not sure if you know this, his middle name, his name is actually Roger Damon Price. Mm. Uh, and that's where we get the name of one of our villains in, uh, in the original series. That's true. And we'll definitely uh, mention him as we get through the plot. So that, that's going to be fun. <laughs> the big difference between the two series in the, in the, the 70s series and the 90s series, and I've, I always like this about the 70s series, the 70s series, the kids that were teleporters, so we could teleport from one location to the next, they needed to wear a special piece of equipment in order to do that. So they had to wear a belt. So if they ever lost their belt, they couldn't teleport, which made them, they found themselves in uh, a lot more precarious positions um, over, the, over that series. Yes, I believe they're called jaunting belts. And I thought that's pretty interesting that they need that to like enhance their telepathic abilities versus like the 90s version where they just have to like tune in their psychic waves to make it happen. We didn't need to be as jaunty. We were, we could oh, no. <laughs> of course. We were happy on our own. I was really excited to check this out because uh, being a huge fan of Nickelodeon in the 90s, I completely missed this series. I, I don't know when it came on within the Alex, schedule. what were you it, doing? Was it 1992 or 93? Like, it was 92. I don't know what I was doing. I don't Too busy know watching Are You Afraid of the Dark? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know when it came on, like in, within the schedule, but I, it, I remember seeing the commercials for it. I never saw mm -hmm. the show. And, Look, uh, as long as you were seeing Christian Tessier in some show on Nickelodeon, you right. were yes. fine. Yeah, which I did. Uh, obviously, Are You Afraid of the Dark being the, the main thing. Yeah. But, uh, but I was really excited to check this one out because I've, I've wanted to. I, I'm very much one of those uh, type of people where I, I've got to, I'm a completionist. I've, I've got to see everything. So whenever uh, going back into Nickelodeon's history and I saw the commercials for this again, it's like, I got to find this somewhere. I got to find this and watch this because <laughs> this looks really fun. And I finally had the chance this week to check out these first five episodes com completely with fresh eyes uh, with zero expectations and i really i really got a kick out of this uh, first series so i'm really excited to talk about this oh thank you yeah i'm actually pretty curious how our perspectives will differ during this review because i've actually watched this way back in 1992 when it first aired and i remember seeing it on like a sunday afternoon or early evening on nickelodeon i wasn't quite sure what the scheduling was like but i remember catching it like you know just flipping through like the TV guide channel and checking it out. And I was very mystified from the opening. So we'll definitely talk about that when we get to that part. That may explain why I didn't uh, catch it. Cause Sundays were usually go to church. And then my grandparents came over we spent the afternoon with my grandparents. So that may be why I never got to check out the series. So uh, I say we just dive right into it. Uh, I actually did have a question for Christian before we got too far into it. And I know we're pulling memories from uh, a show. Um, well, you're hoping to pull memories. Who, who knows <laughs> what we'll get? We'll do, your do our best to jog your memory. What do you remember about getting involved with the series? So I'd worked on uh, Australian television um, for several years and I'd worked on a show that was very popular in the United Kingdom. It was a, a basically a, a very popular soap opera called Neighbours. Um, and I was over in the UK after I'd finished on Neighbours, uh, working on a few different projects. And I was invited to go and meet with Roger Damon Price. 
uh, and we had a great meeting. And then before I knew it, I was uh, off to Florida. We shot uh, half of half of it in Florida and half in uh, the UK. Um, anyway, I just remember it being a really enjoyable, exciting time, actually. Cool. I'm kind of curious, were the island shots in Florida or were the, was that some other location? No, so I don't know how old your audience is. I don't know what I can go into. The island shots were shot uh, on a beach in Cornwall, I believe, which is in England. And we were shooting, I think it was in autumn, uh, in fall, sorry. And um, we were filming on this beach and it was, it was reasonable, reasonable weather. Uh, and then... In a break, we decided to go for a walk around the beach. We didn't realize it at the time, uh, but where they'd set up our shooting just around the corner from there was actually a nudist beach. Uh, oh. So <laughs> you walk around the corner and it, was, it would have been about four or five degrees. And there were quite a few people wearing beanies and scarves and socks and nothing else. It was an interesting experience. <laughs> I'll say I'm, I'm wondering if they came from the mothership that you discovered. <laughs> so I think we shot, I think we shot some of it there and then we shot some at universal studios in Florida. And that tracks, they, they did a lot of universal studios at that time. Yeah. Were the underwater shots shot there too, or was that like inside of a pool? That, I'm very curious. That was in a pool that was in a pool in at universal, I believe. And we had to do, it was quite interesting to get the, it was very high tech uh, in the 90s. So to get us to fly out, there are shots where we fly out of the spaceship and we sort of fly out and, and land. Um, what we did is we turned the camera upside down. We set up an upside down version of the rig and we had a grip um, who's someone, normally a strong person that works on a film set, um, to hold us by our ankles and then drop us through the hole uh, and they would film us and it would look like we were shooting out uh, and then we'd land on our heads on a mat. It was, it was great. Oh, that's that's cool. incredible. It's taking being a stuntman to a whole new level. <laughs> <laughs> Very high tech. Well, well speaking of technology, let's, uh, let's begin with this plot and find out what the deal is with uh, Adam, Lisa, Kevin and Megabyte figuring out what this mothership is all about. Uh, so the origin story aired November 18th, 1992, and concluded its fifth part one month later, December 16th, 1992. It was written by Roger Price and directed by Ron Oliver, who is from Are You Afraid of the Dark fame, as you may know, and stars Christian Smith as Adam, who we have here, Kristen Ariza as Lisa, Adam Pierce as Kevin, Christian Tessier as Megabytes, and Jeff Harding as General Damon, among many other supporting roles. Can I just say, now that you're saying that, must have been very confusing on set with all the Adams and Christians. And <laughs> right? Very confusing. Christian, Kristen. Uh, I, I was actually wondering what it's like to work with Kristen Ariza because you had a lot of like scenes together in terms of like interacting with like discovering your powers and helping her guide through all that. Just that she was very nice, very nice, very lovely to work with, very professional. Um, to be honest, I spent more time because Kristen was only in the first series, I believe. Um, I spent a lot more time with Christian Tessier um, because we worked together throughout, I think, did we do five series or four series? I can't remember. Five, five. five series. Um, so I don't have that many memories other than seeing the naked people on the beach. I was with <laughs> her when we, when we had that experience. So that's firmly ingrained in my memory. 
Well, that might be a little traumatizing. <laughs> uh, so jumping right into the plot of the origin story, part one, we open to a lone shore as a teenage boy with long hair washes ashore. He approaches a tall, disfigured statue protruding out of the sand. This is Adam, our lead character of the series. Upon removing the seaweed from his hair and clearing his eyes, he drops to his knees before a circular metallic door with strange glyphs lining the outer rim. Adam touches the door and it immediately responds by dissolving away and pulling him in. Adam screams as he slides down a transparent tube, leading him into the heart of a sentient alien ship. Due to the intro theme song, which by the way is different from any of the other miniseries arcs throughout the series, has more of a like synth sounding thing. And then from Culex Experiment all the way to the Living Stones, which is the last one, uh, it's got like some like timpani percussion and some guitar riffs going on, which I've, you know, you can compare and contrast to see what you, what you like better. I like them all. Uh, I haven't heard the other ones. All I've heard is this one because it's the only episodes that I've seen. Mm-hmm. But the theme song really remind gave me some never ending story vibes. Oh, interesting. Yeah, there's something like 80s about the way it uses its uh, synth melodies that are very, you know, up and down and flowing. Uh, how do you feel about the opening sequence of this series when you're discovering the mothership for the first time and you washed up upon shore? Well, it's interesting because when you're shooting something, you never really know how it's going to turn out. And, you know, I was mocking our special effects or the way that we went about our special effects before, but I actually think the opening credits were pretty cool at the time. Um, there hadn't been that much stuff seen like that at, the, uh, at that point. Um, it was interesting we ron oliver came to us one day and he said which do you prefer and he played us uh tomorrow people by bob marley and he played us the track that eventually became the tomorrow people theme song and we all said the bob marley one the bob marley one let's do the bob marley one uh and i don't think they could get the rights so that's why we ended up with that second piece of theme music but i thought in terms of storytelling it's a great way to start a story, like start a story with a mystery. And that's exactly what pulled me in when I was a kid too. Like I felt it was very ominous just seeing that shore with that 80s synth music chords is like, you know, setting up the ambience. And we're like, oh, who's this kid who washed up on shore? Did he like come from, like, escape from like a government agency or what? what's his story here? And then we just- well, from, like a, from like a modeling, like a modeling agency. I mean, he's yeah. so attractive. <laughs> How is he- why has he got such long hair? Well, it was the 90s. That's that's the True. answer. I was quite jealous of that long hair. <laughs> my grandmother used to say to me, my grandmother, um, uh, who I lived with at the time, um, she she has a very strong Hungarian accent. She said, Christian, puts a hat on. It's very, don't, yuck, yuck. <laughs> <laughs> but moving on from the title sequence, we see an African-American teenage girl plunge into an unknown watery depths slowly sinking, then immediately cut to a schoolboy in a maroon school uniform, wake up on the bus, startled and confused. He mentions the name Lisa as if someone he knew was in danger. Kevin's friend and classmate Megabyte rambles on about some assignment he didn't want to do that his teacher doesn't take seriously grading. Kevin mentions the name of the mysterious reappearing female in his dreams to Megabyte, to which he responds that Kevin is in love with a dream girl. After their double-decker bus passes through an intersection, the boys spot some neighborhood bullies on the sidewalk. (laughs) 
Both Kevin and Megabyte pull out two neon-colored green and yellow super soakers and promptly squirt the bullies from their window while the bus passes them by. <laughs> Provoked. <laughs> drive-by. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> but, you know, the kid version. <laughs> it's safe. <laughs> uh, it's just water. It's fine. It's fine. Right? It, it, no one, no one, th- didn't that... No one was actually harmed in the making of this episode. No. Uh, meanwhile, we witness um, a mother dressing her teenage daughter in a pink frilly dress while an episode of Ren and Snippy plays on a small tube TV in their urban apartment. The one I'm the cat. Yeah. Did you know what episode that was from? Uh that was uh Stimpy's big break or something big day. like yep. that. Yep. It was actually yes. the very first episode of season one of Friends mm-hmm. Stimpy, because you know this is the year 1992 and all those shows were just breaking ground on Nickelodeon at the time. So that's a fun little Easter egg. Uh but anyways, <laughs> Ren and Stimpy aside, uh there's a girl's uh, standing on a pedestal in a pink dress while her mother like adjusts the trim of it. And this is uh, Lisa Davies, the girl from Kevin's Recurring Dreams. And she's seen her arguing with her mother about entering an upcoming talent show in this outfit, to which each character has an opposite opinion. Cut back to the ocean shore, where we see Adam enter the central chamber of this underground alien spaceship as he examines the rotating, light-emitting core housed in the center of the room. We then wipe to Kevin and Megabyte arriving at Megabyte's father's house where Megabyte asks his mom from America over the phone if it's okay to have Kevin over. Intercut to Lisa arguing with her mother about wearing the dress to the talent show yet again, then cut back to Megabyte playing a card guessing game with Kevin in the living room. Surprisingly, Kevin was able to predict all the cards Megabyte held up, even the red herring of a red car on a magazine with number three on it. So what do you think about these past couple of scenes with uh, Lisa and Kevin? I was really glad the story was strong because as wonderful as I'm sure everyone is in the show as an individual, there were some performances that were really (laughs) tough for me to sit through. Um, Yeah. It it really reminded me of the Phantom Cab episode Mm -hmm. uh, because they, there was some really, really bad acting. We're looking at you kid in yellow shirt. (laughs) What can you see that's weightless? Nothing! Air! But you can't see air! Or can you? Wait a second, there's a trick here! When I was little, I could hear people talking, even when they weren't moving their lips. And when I got older, the voices got louder. And now these dreams, the ones with Lisa, now they come every night. Megabyte, I'm scared. What's happening to me? There was some really close comedic timing. Like it, it, it almost worked. The script was there, mm-hmm. but the timing was just not quite there, uh, which which irked me just because I, I thrive on that kind of thing. But the story really did get me engaged. Mm-hmm. And that's why I enjoy the series so much. I was really wanting to know what this was, what are tomorrow people, uh, how did this how did Adam know who Lisa was? Who is Lisa? Oh, Lisa's this person. Why aren't you drowning in the water? We just saw you drowning in the water. Mm-hmm. It's a premonition. And I really was getting into the story of it. And I loved I loved how the Nickelodeon universe is starting to connect. And, and uh, this was before Nickelodeon was really doing a lot of crossovers mm-hmm. with their other stuff. I mean, you saw Mark Summers. Magical on- Mystery Tour. Yes, and he also made an appearance on Finders Keepers. Mark Summers learns about Finders Keepers. Wesley, I don't quite understand how to work one of these things. Uh, Hillary, show them how we play with it in our house. Sure. 
then they would do their crossover promotions where you would see Danger Mouse who would interact with other characters where they would edit them to look like they were talking to each other. Join Nickelodeon as we salute Danger Mouse and bid him fond farewell as he leaves the First Kids Network. Bye, Danger Mouse. Goodbye, Rated K. Bye, Danger Mouse. Danger Mouse. I'm really going to miss you. Goodbye, Mark, and good luck to the new guy. <laughs> Goodbye, lassie old friend. Bye-bye, Danger Mouse. By the way, where are you going? I don't know. <laughs> Goodbye, Danger Mouse, and good luck. Nickelodeon salutes you. Goodbye, Nickelodeon. I miss you. But that was all in the marketing. You didn't really see that much in, in the television shows right. where they would cross over. And at this point, I, I think it's really interesting that Nickelodeon was really starting to blend the lines of their programming a little bit and i thought that was cool but as for just the story that they're telling the jokes could work a little better the acting really needs to be better but uh i think lisa does a very good job and i haven't seen adam much yet so uh we'll we'll, we'll dive more in on adam later but of the ones so far, Lisa, Lisa's performance is the one I felt was more believable. I agree. Yeah, Adams is more of a subdued, slow burn, like his character development. I think it's just due to the fact, I don't know whether they planned this or not from the origin story or if they had from the get-go the idea that they're going to like develop his character throughout all five series until they concluded. Um, and they even, they even did like a little side series with some graphic novels later on in the late 2000s. But um, yeah, his his development is very subtle and really feeds into all the other characters who are like getting into the their own identities as tomorrow people. Um, so he's kind of there as like the glue that holds everyone together. Um, so we'll we'll see more of his development in later parts of this particular uh, miniseries arc. And I am definitely not going to watch the rest of the series because I want to wait until we cover it on Splat Attack so that way I can watch it shortly before so my emotions are... Definitely. I can remember and recall very well what they are. So I'm looking forward to those now after this one. So this is going to be cool. Me too. I have all of them already scheduled for our future seasons just because <laughs> I, I don't care if no one knows about the show. We're tell, we're talking about it like BOC talks about 15. You're going to get on board with <laughs> us and discover why it's amazing. Uh, this one's a little less to do with the episodes and more of a personal opinion type thing. Uh, obviously the show, uh, especially the character of Kevin deals a lot with telepathic abilities. Uh, what are your thoughts on psychic abilities? Do you ever feel that someday humans might unlock those powers? Or do you feel that this topic is best confined to a sci-fi or fantasy works of fiction? I was reading up, um, I'm not going to get his name correct, so I'm not going to try, but uh, there's a guy in the mid-90s. Um, he was, I believe, a Buddhist monk, and he was able to, his breath control was so fantastic that he was able to slow his heart rate um, considerably. He was able to change the temperature in different parts of his body uh, on command and he was able to hold his breath for quite a ridiculous I can't remember how many minutes it was but a ridiculous amount of time so I guess my answer to your question is I think that the idea of the tomorrow people might be stretching it a little bit but I think there's certainly 
uh, abilities that we have um, capacity for our the way that we use our brain that maybe haven't been as uh, researched or looked into or we haven't achieved quite what we could as the human races yet I mean even things like just speed like running you know you look at people in the 60s at the Olympics and I got kids at my son's school that are running as fast as that now so we're constantly developing and improving yeah I definitely am with you there in terms of like how humans progress through evolving and learning like uh, just to piggyback back on your running comment, I remember hearing a story in a self-help book that like illustrated how like no one was able to run a four minute mile until this one person did it. And yet somehow once they were figured out the way to do it through training, conditioning and pacing and breathing and what all those variables, um, suddenly like dozens of people are trying to do that and even exceed it. And it's like, well, mm. somehow there needs to be a breakthrough somewhere so that it can show other people the way to follow that if they're passionate and interested enough. And I obviously, you know, as far as I know, no one knows how to teleport by just using their mind yet, but I'm sure if there's like some deep, deeply intensive uh, meditation going on, maybe some sort of energy fields can pop up or, you know, just something, something to elevate the human consciousness a little bit beyond what the everyday ordinary mindset is. I, I, I like to think very much like, you know, Fox Mulder in the X-Files, where he constantly proclaims the truth is out there. I think there's always the possibility that exists, whether or not we can achieve that, I think is just left up to time. Absolutely. Look, I think let's let's do the series again um, and we can explore it uh, some more. Be fun. Believe it or not, Tomorrow People has had a brief uh, second reboot in the mid 2010s on, I believe the CW. Um, and I am not familiar with it, but I'm kind of curious what ideas they explore as they intensify the plots around, you know, government involvement with these superhumans who are trying to figure out their powers and how to use them for the betterment of humanity. Mm -hmm. I think to get the, to get the feel, I think they did use an Australian actor. I can't remember who it was, but there was definitely, I think there was an Australian actor in there. I'm curious if he contacted you for tips. <laughs> but anyways, uh, back to the talent contest where actually Lisa's headed uh, to perform a song and hopefully get a Hollywood contract with a big uh, producer. Uh, Lisa runs into her friend Sammy, who is helping another act get ready for the show. Uh, to be specific, uh, a Shirley Temple dancing trio. Uh, she quickly covers her dress with her trench coat and denies to her friend that she's there to perform. Meanwhile, Megabyte shows Kevin to his bedroom while Kevin demands that his friend drops the whole ESP thing after a round of video games. And uh, Kevin admits he does have psychic powers and feels scared, wondering what to do with the responsibility the more he thinks about it. Back at the talent contest, you know, Lisa's there bickering with her mother yet again backstage, you know, trying to calm her nerves down, try to caught up in her doubt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, once she gets on stage, you know, there's just that moment where time slows down and we see everyone clapping and like the dad holding the camcorder in the back. And it's just like, once, once that microphone falls, it's just like a split second moment where she's like, Psh! I, she, she broke out as tomorrow people fans like to, um, you know, state where she first triggers her teleporting abilities and then she ends up landing in that South Pacific ocean, just in front of that mothership that's buried underneath the, the sand, you know, after that, you know, we just see the audience reacting to her disappearing and, uh, 
you know, she awakens from her slumber after she takes that plunge and Megabyte asks what's wrong from another room while Kevin's anxiety reaches a fever pitch uh, once he deals with it because he, he has a breakout too um, at the same ocean actually. And Lisa swims over to save Kevin from drowning uh, once he ends up there. So both call, cough up the salty water as Lisa questions why she knows Kevin despite them never meeting before. Kevin wonders the same too. To see if they are dreaming, Lisa orders Kevin to slap her. Kevin taps the side of her cheek and she retaliates with a much stronger slap, one so strong that it shocks Kevin and knocks him back to his bedroom through teleportation. Megabyte enters the room asking him what he's been, where he's been and questioning why his bed is wet despite stating that he doesn't wet the bed. <laughs> Kevin replies he was dreaming he was drowning in the sea, that she slapped him and he reemerged back in his bed. <laughs> okay, so let's go back to the comedic timing again. Sure. <laughs> uh, because the, the setup, which I didn't realize was a setup. I just thought it was that was the whole joke. Uh, when he was asking mom, is it okay if... Kevin spends the night or if it spends the weekend and then they finish and okay by the way I gotta check do you wet the bed and, and I thought that was just a throwaway joke was, okay and then he's in the water uh, in the ocean then transports back and completely coated head to toe I mean he was underwater <laughs> and then the joke I thought you said you don't wet the bed I got a genuine chuckle out of that. But I think what I was even more disturbed at was he's covered head to toe. What did you think he just did to himself? He had a wet dream. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Elsewhere, we are introduced to a group of antagonists that we'll be following through this arc. Colonel Masters and Professor John Galt, who are investigating the strange disappearance of one of the contest performers. Cut back to Lisa on the beach, wandering the shore, looking for anybody. She comes across a tent with clothes hanging on a clothesline that she quickly swipes so she can change out her wet pink dress. She turns to her left and witnesses the strange alien ship protruding out of the sand. She swipes her hand across the rim of the entrance and, much like Adam, gets sucked into the tube to the corridors down below. While Kevin and Megabyte discuss the possibilities to capitalize on Kevin's special abilities, they run into their bullies again. A large fellow in a gray denim jacket and a shorter, more slender person wrapped in a punky black leather jacket. The bullies board the double-decker bus to beat them up. The bigger bully slams Kevin's head into the ceiling a couple of times before Kevin teleports out of there, (laughs) tangled in seaweed in a familiar ocean that we've seen many times before. Cut the credits. (laughs) And this is end of part one of the origin story. So what do you want to talk about here, Alex? (laughs) (laughs) These bullies are the most ridiculous thing. Just, and and you can see him. They have the camera angle pulled back where you can see him hunched and then straightens his legs out. So he's hitting the top of the bus by himself. Then they cut to a close-up. And then it looks like the bully's doing it. But it, at, at first you can just tell he's standing up doing it. And that made me laugh really, really bad. It's like, silly. <laughs> I should also mention that... That's- the bullies run quite a bit throughout this miniseries arc. We're always seeing them running around the bus. Like, man, they should be, ha- they should have like six pack abs and like muscles on their muscles at- after the end of this with how much running they do. I do want to comment that Ron Oliver's performance had me 
cackling, uh, especially after she teleported. Yeah, the MC bit. Uh, now we have a wonderful young singer with a wonderful young voice. Here is the wonderful young Lisa Davis. He's like, yes. Give it up for Lisa. <laughs> Another thing that made me laugh was just the way it ends. Mm -hmm. It just ends. Yeah. There's, there's no fade out. There's no. I mean, Power Rangers. They would always slow the footage down and yep. then freeze frame. And it was also on like a and dramatic gets, note. Like, what are we going to do now? Yeah. Find out next time on Power Rangers. And you'd have the music. Dun, 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 dun. Right. I mean, most shows would do that. To prepare you for next week. This one didn't do that. It just cut and went straight to the credits with no hesitation at all. It threw it. I had whiplash. Yeah, I don't like that at all. <laughs> and it's going to repeat for the rest of the part. So get ready to, you know, yeah. deal with that and strap on a neck brace because we're getting a whole bunch of TV whiplash. <laughs> I, I watched a couple of uh, older interviews on YouTube to get familiar with some of your uh, theatrical uh, work. And I noticed that you did some uh, roles for Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream in the UK. Um, I'm kind of curious, have you ever had any instances of stage fright when performing on stage? And if you did, how did you overcome it? And if it, that was different from TV or not? I guess you're always nervous. I mean, if you, uh, anybody that's performed or is doing something that they want to succeed at and do well at, I guess nerves kicks in. I've never had any debilitating stage nerves. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and whether or not I'm more nervous for TV or for theatre, they, they, they're both different. But like on something like The Tomorrow People, we had some really amazing guest stars on that show. So not in the first series, but I remember having to do scenes with Christopher Lee and mm. just going, oh, my God, I'm in a room with Christopher Lee. This is <laughs> unbelievable. Um, or Elizabeth Perkins. Um uh, you know, I only recently became nervous for myself the other day because one of our directors um, for a later series was a woman called Viv, Viv Albertine, who uh, told us at the time, and because there was no Google, no one was Googling anything at that time. Um, she said, oh, yeah, I, she said, I used to be in a, um, in a, a punk band. And I was like, all right, well, cool. And she, I said, what was it called? She said, it's called The Slits. And I had never heard of The Slits before. I was watching a documentary a week ago and it was all about uh, Sid Vicious and his relationship with the Slits and how they were the biggest female punk group in the world uh, and they did all these amazing things. And I was there during the Tomorrow People working with this phenomenal woman um, that if I'd known exactly who she was, I would have been very, very nervous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes reputation can change your perspective on someone totally. And sometimes mm -hmm. I feel like that often happens when like someone's meeting a celebrity for the first time and you just feel like you're on a totally different level. But then when you get used to talking to them or after you make that initial contact point, it's like, wait a minute. I mean, yeah, they're famous, but you know, they're just 
people like you and me with similar likes, dislikes, and interests. So it, knowing that in the back of your head, it makes it a lot more easy to like carry a conversation and get to know them better. Absolutely. I'm not sure if I answered your question. I can't remember what the question was, but yeah. <laughs> did you ever get stage fright? Did I ever get stage fright? Uh, yes. I, I would say yes, but not, not in a way that would mm-hmm. stop me from doing what I wanted to do. So I, I, I guess my point is that, you know, for anybody that's out there that has to do, I don't know, presentation at work or school or, um, you know, even does this a podcast. Play or anything, <laughs> it's podcast. Of course, yeah. we all, our heart rate raises, we, we get nervous, we sweat. I guess as an actor, you teach yourself. And, um, you know, then I went on to drama school as well. Uh, you learn ways to be able to manage those nerves. The main reason why I asked this question actually is um, based off of Lisa's performance in part one of the origin story because she has a lot of nerves going to the talent show and her mother's trying to encourage her, you know, but also like making it worse because she's mentioning how like, oh, this is the opportunity of a lifetime to connect with a Hollywood director. And then of course, you know, Ron Oliver's up there as the MC introducing her little do we know until later as an Easter egg. And then, you know, <laughs> Lisa pops up there in her pink dress that she doesn't want to be in. And before she can even let out a note to sing, you know, her microphone falls off the stand. Everyone starts laughing. The room like slows down time for some reason. And then all you can feel is just like this moment where her heart's beating fast. And then before you know it, she's out of there and into the ocean near uh, the mothership. Where I, I believe I saved her. Uh, yeah. Which is nice of me. Yeah. You're a very compassionate character in, in this uh, series. Like you seem like the unofficial leader of the group too. Like you're always out there concerned for all the others, even Kevin, who you meet later on in, in the origin story. It's like you've known each other for years, which I really appreciate that kind of rapport and chemistry that all the characters who are playing, you know, together on screen had. Well, I guess that's the responsibility of Ron Oliver. He did a great job of making us all feel very comfortable and, and confident at work. Yeah. Mr. 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 Christmas, as I like to call him now. Yeah, uh, yeah. He is known for doing <laughs> yes. Hallmark's Christmas specials. <laughs> whether, whether you like him or not, it's, it's up to you to decide. Um, I'm only familiar with his Christmas at the Plaza one, but I'm sure he's done quite a few since then. Look, he's a, he's a fantastic guy, very, very quirky. And before... Um, before he was working with, he had a weird career before he started working with Nickelodeon. Um, he did all of the, he did a whole bunch of horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, he was also a magician too before. Sweet 16 or Prom Night or I can't remember, some Prom Nights. So he did those, but he also was famous in Canada for walking around with a sock on his hand and, do, and interviewing people with a sock puppet. puppet. So no way. <laughs> uh, he's a crazy guy. He's really cool. Did you see what Ron Oliver posted, made his uh, cover photo on Facebook this the other day? Uh, did it have something to do with a monkey or a flag? I couldn't quite see no, it. He, his birthday was just the other day. Oh, happy birthday, and, Ron Oliver. And happy he, birthday, Ron. And he put as his cover... <laughs> the uh what you would see for christmas he is born with the star of david oh wow (laughs) (laughs) he's a very funny guy yeah i mean gotta love his humor and it definitely shows in his work too (laughs) now the other thing and i'm you might be able to help me with this Mm -hmm. i think it was our designer but ron 
made sure that we always had Turtle Man in every episode. Oh, I noticed that guy. He's like the guy walking the turtle unassumedly yeah. on the sidewalk. Yeah. So I think he was our set designer. Um, and Turtle Man just turned up all the time. And that was another just Ron Oliver-ism. <laughs> was it purely an Easter egg or was there like some hidden meaning behind it? No, he's crazy for crazy sake. Gotcha. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> that sounds about right. So uh, let's jump into part two then, with that being said. Uh, so when we resume the story after the recap and title credits, which, you know, it recaps. Okay, hey, going on the recap, the recap gets longer every episode. Uh, I think the first one was, I think the first one was maybe a minute. And then by episode three, it was two minutes. And then by episode four, it was like three minutes. And you could say, I wonder how long the whole series would be if you took all the recap out and then and and all the credits out just had it one long continuous it, it, it'd be a movie probably an hour and a half long more than one yeah time. tomorrow people recap the movie <laughs> no thanks <laughs> uh, so when we resume to the story after the recap and title credits kevin slightly teleports back to the bus throwing the seaweed on the bullies giving them and megabyte the opening they need to escape Meanwhile, back on the alien spaceship, Lisa enters a sandy metallic boiler type room where she encounters the friendly Adam Newman for the first time, but speaks his name before knowing him. He offers to catch Lisa up on all the events that happened thus far, as if he is like the Grandmaster Poobah of the lore of this universe that I still don't understand after watching the entire series. But that's beside the point. I'm, I'm assuming he's spent enough time on the ship and the ship communicates to them. Yeah. I'm assuming it's probably given him that information already. But anyways, uh, back at Megabyte's father's abode, uh, Megabyte listens to a disappointing answering machine message from his father, claiming he had to put off the sailing trip with Junior yet again in the name of work. We cut back to Adam and Lisa exploring the alien spaceship while they experience various powers together and get acquainted. We also hear the ship pulsate a strange organic drone, indicating that it was a living being, not just a mechanical vessel, that crash-landed here some time ago. Uh, back at the talent contest, Colonel Masters and Professor Galt discuss a breakthrough in tracking down the people linked to the performer's disappearance. They claim the seaweed that was covering Kevin from the double-decker bus was there, and could somehow link them to the teleporters. Uh, meanwhile, Megabyte envies Kevin's newfound powers, claiming his friend is a super-being. Cut to the underground spaceship where Lisa questions the nature of her powers and what forces brought her, Adam, and Kevin to the shore beyond their control. Adam interfaces with various glyphs on the core's control panel while it telepathically communicates that both Adam and Lisa are Tomorrow People, the next stage of human evolution, which is, by the way, their tagline that they used in many Nickelodeon commercials. Back in England, Megabyte discusses what to do with Kevin's powers. Their quarrel is interrupted by a news report on Lisa Davies teleporting out of the talent show stage days ago, sparking Kevin's memory of Lisa. At the aforementioned stage, the colonel, the professor, and a silent thug named Gloria watch as Professor Galt tests the machine to trap the girl should she teleport back in place. <laughs> After a sudden explosion from the machine malfunctioning, they set it up again with a refined en energy field to trap Lisa. Transition back to the underground ship where Lisa and Megabyte transmit a message to any and all fellow Tomorrow people through the ship's sentient core, with the hope someone is listening. In the meantime, Megabyte and Kevin approach their flight to America with the intent to track down Lisa. Speaking of Lisa, she tries to teleport away from the beach, 
but ends up underwater just a few hundred yards from the shore where Adam and the spaceship lie. Adam reassures her that she'll get the hang of the teleportation with some focused attention and practice. Uh, Lisa teleports again, promising to return after she reconvenes with her mother. Back at the talent show stage, Lisa successfully teleports back, but is immediately trapped in Professor Galt's anti-teleportation energy field. Megabyte and Kevin make it in time to meet up with her, but Gloria quickly apprehends them for being accomplices to Lisa. On Megabyte's command, Lisa teleports out of there while he grabs a folding chair and smashes the control panel died to the energy field device, trapping Lisa. The field dissipates, leaving room for her to escape. The colonel is in shock of what he sees before his eyes, then sternly looks at Megabyte as a consolation prize, despite their plans being foiled at this moment. End part two. I am really grateful. I think this is one of the reasons why I like miniseries mm-hmm. a lot more than uh, kind of the sitcom format that we do here in uh, in the States, because it even on, I mean, you have your sitcoms, but even dramatic shows still would go on for 24 plus episodes. And some of them are very plot based where it would be an overall arc. And then you'd have some that are just standalone episodes. And there are times when the story is so strong. I don't want those standalone episodes Mm -hmm. and Netflix especially has a difficult time with having 13 episodes or more and the story the the story just gets too stretched and and there's a lot of filler it's like just get to the point and i really liked the overall story arc for this season for this miniseries Mm -hmm. because the setup was great for the first one and i want to see where this goes but i don't want to stick around for 13 episodes and then episode two jumps in and really gets the plot moving and you get new characters uh professor galt i did pronounce his name right galt galt professor galt he is my second favorite character of the show he's he's quite Uh, a ham isn't he (laughs) he is he's so cheesy and so over the top and i love it so much professor galt Colonel Masters, what can I do? Oh, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. Clumsy me, I do pick up. Something very interesting. It seems... Uh, never mind. Uh, he is... He reminds me of Wesley from uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. Wesley Wyndham Price. It's very nice to meet you. If that character was evil, put him in this show. And that's what <laughs> you've got. He was uh, a lot of fun. Something but. about his demeanor reminds me of like a polite butler. <laughs> he wants these contracts in London by morning. Well, here, hop on. With the time difference, you'll just make it. <laughs> but this episode started to bring in the villains and started to bring in what the kids are up against. And I, that's when I was really getting hooked. And all the adult actors were over the top in, in their caricature. And that's what really started to suck me in. And uh, and I thought Lisa did a great job, which I said earlier. And then uh, Christian I is my favorite character of the whole series. Uh, I really just dug all of his scenes. I especially dug the, the two of them together. I thought they had great chemistry together. And I wanted to see more. The show really, on its abrupt cut, uh, <laughs> really made me want to check out more. And <laughs> what were the adults doing? He is 
running at the computer with a chair and you're letting him do it. What are you guys doing? Yeah, Colonel Master just takes a step forward and he's like, no. no. <laughs> teleport, Lisa, teleport. Who, who are you? Who cares? Just teleport. Yes. No. Yeah, I think they're just waiting for their cue, and I'll have gripes to mention about some of these performances once we get to the end. But, uh, oh, yeah. you know, that aside, I, I do like how things are steadily ramping up now. We get some danger. We get some intrigue. We get a little bit more lore and how these characters interact and are slowly discovering more of their powers and the capacity of what they're able to use them in. Like Lisa can only teleport to locations she knows versus Adam being able to fully master his his telekinetic abilities so it's really interesting to like peel back the layers like an onion um for each of these characters as we're starting to get familiar with them yes and i like that each of them it was beginning to be alluded to that each of them had their own particular set of skills all of them could teleport but um adam could heal people Mm -hmm. and kevin had telepathy so i was looking forward to see what it was that Lisa could do. And later we'll find out that some of their other powers come to light too. Like I believe Kevin has some sort of clairvoyance or second sight where he's like able to see Mm -hmm. clearly to distant locations of what's happening as it's happening, which will come in handy for the climax. I was actually, while, while we were talking about like the Island scenes from before, um, we noticed that tomorrow people did have quite a bit of locations that were switching back and forth between throughout the five parts of the origin story. Um, did you have a preference for like any particular scenes you're shooting, whether they're like in the city in England or like on the Island or inside the mothership? I'd spent several years going back and forth to the UK before I shot the tomorrow people. So I was really familiar, um, with with the uk and some of the locations are are really really beautiful and i very much enjoyed working there um but for a young australian actor to i guess to walk through the the gates of universal studios in florida there's a real sense of going america is you know the movie capital of the world and to work walk through the gates of somewhere where you know some really amazing films have been made was quite exciting for me I mean, I, w- I would love to go back to Universal Studios, too, if I have the yes. chance. I was there in 2005 for a band trip, and the most I was able to do is, like, do a quick game lab game and see Slime Time Live for, like, 10 minutes. But uh, And you know what else was good? Was, was working for Nickelodeon. Um, you just got uh, – you could go on any – at lunchtime, you go whip in, go on any of the rides, and they get you to the front of the li- ride. You'd go on the ride. You'd go back to work. It was great. No better way to have lunch than to eat it while on a roller coaster, as Anique Chartier once told us when she uh, was talking about her experiences uh, working on The Tale of the Laughing in the Dark for Mario for the Dark. Well, we had made mention of the villains and part of the inspiration for the naming of said villain. Was there any opportunity? Well, opportunity would be a poor choice of word. Uh, was there ever an, a time when you saw those villains as imposing were they did you all get along well on the set were you ever nervous about them did they try to maintain a level of threat or or imposingness to you so 
no is the answer. <laughs> they were very good actors and they were very kind and very nice, very generous. Um, wasn't series one. I, I know that we're talking about um, the, the origin story, but um, I think it's series two where William Hoopkins plays the baddie in that, I think. Um, I, I think that is um, Monsoon Man from series three because Kulik's experiment is number two. And being a Star Wars fan, um, working with Red Leader was pretty pretty cool. Got a little bit of everything in each series. It's it's interesting to see how the dynamic changes as the as the overarching series arc progresses as you get to like, yeah the villains the villains were great you know from yeah. from Christopher Lee to William Hoopkins um, yeah, there were Gene there Marsh were, yeah Gene Marsh was fantastic yeah I, I find it pretty interesting how each had a very dynamic characterization to them except maybe colonel masters i think he was pretty deadpan for the most part during this episode yeah this, like miniseries uh but i really like general damon and the twist how he was like megabyte's father and yet he he had this very poignant moment instead of like well i'm the villain and you're the hero megabyte what do we do about this as they're talking over the events in their like embassy mansion in the uk and it's like wow that's that's really heavy stuff to well, I think at that time, I think there was a real um, line between what was a kid's show and what was a teen show and what was an adult show. And I think something like The Tomorrow People, I guess, took the lead of shows like Doctor Who and went, do you know what, we're we just going to make the best show that we can make um, and it'll be put on at a, kid a kid's time slot, but hopefully there's something there for everyone to enjoy. So we, we weren't talking down to kids. Yeah, I, th I feel like that's a common theme with like early 90s Nickelodeon shows in particular, mm. that they respected the viewer. They weren't dumbing things down for the sake of entertainment value, but like they somehow understood the connection between the viewer and the creator so that there was a harmonious like balancing act between, um, you know, what they wanted and what they wanted to give. And it all felt authentic and holistic in the process instead of having like more of a disconnect that shows commonly have today. And I mean, Ron Oliver, when we had the chance to speak with him, he, he said that over in Are You Afraid of the Dark, there were things that they did then they can't do now. And then going back and wa watching The Tomorrow People, I was floored with, because I still I still have 2022 goggles on. And now yeah. I'm going back and watching 90s Nick. And uh, they had a mom who was tied up and captured and they're threatening to kill her. They had uh, a... a Christian pointing a gun at uh, an adult. Yeah, uh, they had Lady Mulvaney in a helicopter with an assault rifle and like a dinner plate <laughs> full of ammun live ammunition. Like what? <laughs> and and one of the I forgot uh, one of the henchmen hanging from a flag, and it was an actual yeah. stuntman hanging from a building, which obviously yeah. there was some safety precautions. But watching, they don't do those kinds of things now at all, and it would be especially for a kids show. Now I may I may be wrong as well. Um, I believe that henchman, and you'll have to look up his name, but I believe hopefully I don't get in trouble. For I think his character this. name is Jones. He was he worked for Colonel Masters. He had like the aviators. He was bald. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So he's the voice of Baby Herman in Roger Rabbit. Oh no, kidding! Really? Wow. Yeah. Oh, dude, that's awesome. Yeah, so that was cool. I mean, you got to meet all these really interesting people. Um, and we'd go, do the voice, do the voice, do the voice. <laughs>
Christ, don't do that. <laughs> yeah. And that was right after it was a huge hit. So yeah, he yes. was bombarded. Yeah. Um, so moving on to the origin story, part three. We back up a bit to see Megabyte urging Lisa to teleport out of the talent show building where she lands underwater near the shore where the spaceship sits. Adam picks up that Lisa is in danger and fishes her out of the ocean, bringing her back to the core of the spaceship. Lisa clamors in shock of being trapped in the energy field while Adam reassures her that she's safe now. The ship responds to her cries by materializing rectangular glasses of what appears to be orange juice for Lisa and Adam to drink. Back at the talent show building, <laughs> Megabyte is surrounded by Gloria, Colonel Masters, and Professor Galt for questioning. Megabyte cries that he is not one of those teleporters, but also confirms to the Colonel that teleporters exist and they are not too far away. Do you have anything to mention here real quick before we move on? This really feels like a poor man's home alone. It feels like they took a John Hughes script of a smart aleck kid with a bunch of dumb adults and just plays with it. But the banter is again the the timing is just not quite there yeah uh, this the script is there but the performance needs to really punch it up right it, it's something's not quite lining up where you'd expect to either laugh or be you know taken aback by something that someone says but really it's just like eh, can you say that again or like that was awkward okay yep. let's keep going with the plot uh i get i get what you're saying and i think a lot of the villains I don't know if it's just due to their acting experience or the type of the show or, you know, other kind of working conditions, but uh, they didn't really suck me in too much as like the main characters that we're getting to know. Lisa briefly mentions to Adam that she was saved by a redheaded kid. While she is unsure whether Megabyte is also a tomorrow person, she knows Kevin teleported just before she did out of the talent show building and that she, he can't swim. Lisa and Adam rush to search for him in the ocean below, hoping he hasn't drowned yet. In a strange occurrence, Adam wakes up in a double-decker bus depot at night in the rain where a pudgy driver confronts him asking him how he broke in. <laughs> to teach Kevin a lesson, he chases him up the bus, then jumps into the driver's seat to scare him a bit as he speeds off into a busy interstate through the London downtown area. Kevin holds onto dear life while Megabyte is injected with some sort of serum to knock him out. Professor Galt straps in an anti-teleportation helmet onto Megabyte for safety measures as he packs him into a giant suitcase in efforts to deliver him to General Damon, the apparent commander of this teleporter tracking operation. What the hell is going on here, Alex? Okay, this goes back to what I was saying earlier about how they did... They, they did things in the show that you can't do now. I remember when Secret World of Alex Mack came out and on the first episode, when she first liquefied herself and then reassembled herself behind a bunch of <laughs> boxes, she didn't have any clothes. At least they made it appear like she didn't. And that started a lot of controversy with parents. And then to hide, she liquefied herself and then put herself in a dryer. And they were about to start the dryer which would have killed her and there was a lot of controversy over that uh, there was actually uh, uh, a country where they were going to start banning episodes because of this and now you have the tomorrow people where the child is gagged and stuffed into a suitcase and they are going and they drugged him and they're going to do god knows what to him nobody said a thing like it's normal 
Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> what kind of Mad Max alternative universe is this in the <laughs> early nineties? <laughs> also with that bus scene, I can't help but get like tons of Harry Potter vibes from the prisoner of Azkaban or whenever that scene happens where like they're driving in the double decker bus and it gets like really, really skinny and it like heads off to wizard world. I don't know if you've seen that at all, but that came to yes. mind. Yes. I, I thought of that as well. I also love how the rain just stopped. Yeah. Yeah, look closely. Was, you'll you'll see it. <laughs> you don't have to look closely. It's there. Very, very obvious. Uh, I did really love that though. Uh, I liked that scene. I liked that security guard. He he reminded me of uh, Discount Sergeant Slaughter. Now, how did you break into the yard? Look, I've told you, I appeared out of thin air. Don't with me, boy, or I'll turn you into thin air. I'm Sergeant Slaughter. And I got some real hairy action head your way. Ashton with them most guys screaming for their mama. He serves as a pretty good, you know, side villain for Kevin until he teleported out of there. But also, how are they able to get away with Kevin hanging onto that double-decker bus with just his hands in the middle of the night during a busy intersection in the rain? Like, what? How's that even allowable? I would be fearing for my life, too, and screaming. I'm pretty sure that was just a dummy. I, I hope so. They, or I don't think they actually had a stomach because the because the, the the body didn't move whenever they had the long shot where you could see mm-hmm. it. So I'm I'm pretty sure that was a dummy. Yeah, we have to ask Ron Oliver how how they pulled that off because that was very convincing and concerning <laughs> from my perspective at least. Uh, back at the beach, Kevin regains consciousness to interact with Adam and Lisa at the shore, asking more details about his teleportation powers and what the underground spaceship is all about. Lisa and Adam reassure him that they're not aliens, just different from the rest of the human race. <laughs> Meanwhile, Megabyte is escorted into Professor Galt's limo to the airport to be delivered to General Damon, who happens to contact Colonel Masters via video phone regarding the captured teleporting kid. Uh, cut to a wealthy elderly woman blasting lawn gnomes with a silver revolver in her mansion's courtyard. <laughs> Colonel Masters informs Lady Mulvaney on the phone that the kid captured is indeed a teleporter, which piqued her interest, perhaps something to collect or capitalize on. Transition back to Adam describing the nature of their superhuman powers to Kevin in more detail, citing how their powers are balanced by the limitation of being unable to physically harm other people, regardless of their intentions. Lisa recollects the moment when Megabyte saved her from the energy field device. It's now up to the trio to track down their friend and save him from the clutches of the government. Back at the limo, Megabyte and Professor Galt engage in a heated conversation where the kid reinstates that he himself is not a teleporter, despite the professor believing he is bluffing. Gloria zips him away into their luggage back to bring the conversation to a screeching halt as the limo continues to the airport to uh, England, I believe, or America. One of the two. Uh, so what thoughts do you have here after, uh, going through all those scenes? I, I stand by my, you can't do probably 70% of this show in, in children's programming today. There's, yeah. there's just no way. And I love it that much more for it. I personally like the old lady blasting lawn gnomes with a revolver. There's something very Wild West about it, yeah. But no, I, I don't really have anything new to add to this. I really liked the... I liked Gloria. Gloria was cracking me up. Never uh, said a and, word once in the entire miniseries arc. And and never cracks a smile, just very stone-faced and, and very... 
Makes you uh, wonder if she's secretly like a, a Terminator robot underneath I was that skin. Just, uh, just about to say, very Terminator like. Because if anyone was paying attention, you know, there's one point where Megabyte manages to get the the helmet restrictor off, throws it, throws it at Gloria. Professor Galt like hits the deck in some nearby trash right in front of her, and she doesn't even flinch. Like, who is this person? <laughs> oh no! If you drop that helmet, we'll only hit the deck. I was really surprised at how much action there is in this show because there, there's yeah. no action in any other Nickelodeon property. You might have a few chase scenes in Are You Afraid of the Dark, but we've had a car chase and an explosion in episode three. Yeah, it's getting heated here. Like it feels like the last action hero movie. It except is. Except no Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm sure he's hiding somewhere. <laughs> so getting back into the plot, Adam, Lisa, and Kevin join hands to group teleport outside of the talent show building together so they can rescue their teenage friend, Megabyte. While Adam looks for Megabyte inside, he comes across a Cub Scout troop recruiting the, reciting excuse me, the Pledge of Allegiance. Adam reports back to Lisa and Kevin, claiming Megabyte isn't there. The very moment Adam reconvenes with his fellow Tomorrow People, Colonel Masters, aviator-wearing lackey, chases down the kids with his black van, attempting to run them over. Adam and Lisa dodge and weave through the various boxes in the alley to avoid the pursuant, but Kevin gets caught in front of the van, leaving us on a cliffhanger on whether or not he'll be flattened like roadkill. Uh, not just by the van, but I believe like a giant Mack semi-truck too. Quite a, quite a gut-wrenching there. Leaves you on the edge of your seat, because this is the end of part three now. The whole time I was wondering, I gotta look it up, that van looks like the A-Team van. It does! Like I was, I was wondering, like, why does that red racing stripe look so darn familiar? It's not quite the same, but pretty darn close. I, I want to have a car chase scene with the van in it, and then just put the eighteen theme song over top of it. For for the origin story specifically, do you do you have any particular memories that you feel most fondly about compared to like the other series in the Tomorrow People? I guess building that relationship with Christian over that period of time, Christian Tessier. Um, you know, working with Bron Oliver, who was kind of so weird and wacky, uh, was was fantastic. And and then just you know being able to travel. So we were filming in the UK, we were filming in um, the States. Uh, it was it was really. It was a, a really fun time. Um, we all, and I think everybody just wanted the show to be the best that it possibly could. Uh, and they were all nice people that worked really, really hard. I, I remember filming in Florida in an old people's home and we set a light too close to one of the fire detectors and oh, no. not me. Wow. Someone, 
And we flooded the old people's home, which was not great. Um, all the old people had to be evacuated. That was disappointing. Uh, and interesting. You remember it 30 years later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you learn from do it. that. <laughs> yeah, so things like that. I mean, there, there are mistakes, but do you, you learn from them. Yeah, like, okay, absolutely. We, we need to be, be, be more aware of our surroundings for certain things. I mean, it's it's an unfortunate situation, but thankfully nobody was hurt and you can learn from it on how to do things better next time. So what was uh, some of your favorite moments uh, working on the first series? So I really clearly remember um, working on the back lot at Universal and it was this really dodgy looking swamp place. Um, and I was thinking, gee, this looks really, this does not look good. Uh, and throughout the day shooting, I found out that it was the actual swamp that they filmed the original swamp thing on. Um, oh, wow, so that man. was that was interesting. Uh, what else did we love? I love traveling around. Um, you know, we got to travel all around the UK. Um, we, we got to obviously film in Florida as well, but I guess, um, you know, making making friendships and connections and working with interesting people. Uh, that's what I enjoyed doing most. You had also made mention of the success that it had in the UK. Yeah. So once we'd finished shooting, the show came out in the UK and it was very successful. They told us at the time that it was the highest rating children's programming that had been put out for the last 10 years. So it was, wow. it did really, really well. It was weird. I'm, I did some press in the States for um, the Tomorrow People. And I did an interview and photo shoot with this girl who was quite full on, like she was really nice, but really, really full on. And I didn't have any idea who she was, but they wanted me to like carry her and like, like, like it just, I didn't understand why we were doing it. And then years later, um, I worked on um, the movie Scooby-Doo and the lead was Sarah Michelle Gellar. And Sarah Michelle Gellar came up to me and she said, hi, do you remember me? And I'm like, I, I know who you are. You're Sarah Michelle Gellar. Um, she said, no, no, we've met before. And I was like, no, no, I don't think we have. Um, she said, I think you're fine. We have. We did the front cover of like, oh, I don't know if it was front cover, but like a shoot for 17 magazine or something. And that girl was Sarah Michelle Gellar. So there you go. Wow. You were the one who were carrying her? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Talk about a twist of fate. I know it was, uh, it was amazing. And because we didn't get, I, mean, I can't remember the show that she was on in the States. Was it all my children or something all in the family? Or I, she was on a show prior to Buffy um, mm. that we didn't get in Australia. So I didn't, I, I, I didn't click to me until I, I met her. <laughs> uh, when we were filming. I'm actually curious. Did the tomorrow people air in Australia at all? Yeah, it did. Yeah. No, so it got quite a wide international release. Um, I think it was on in Europe as well, and it was on in mm. Australia. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that's in line with, like, their, their goal of the show, like, with their diverse cast of main characters so that they can appeal to as broad of an audience as possible, and also for syndication. Makes sense. Break. So we'll just jump into the origin story, part four. Continuing from last part's cliffhanger... Lisa and Adam teleport Kevin out of there just in the nick of time, leaving the aviator goon to confront an oncoming big rig and assume demise. The three land in the South Pacific Ocean near the home base. Meanwhile, Megabyte escapes the clutches of Professor Galt and Gloria at the Hard Rock Cafe bathroom, then tears off the teleportation helmet and tosses it near the female goon, as we mentioned before. 
Uh, surprisingly, she is unscathed from the explosion, leading one to believe she is some sort of android or superhuman of another nature. With an opening to escape, Megabyte ducks into a dance club and swaps clothes with a person to maneuver his way out of there undetected. Once out, he tries to get a ride from the bus, but because he only has American money on him, he's left stranded on the sidewalk. Back at the spaceship, Lisa mentions to Adam how her mother bakes chocolate brownies to lure her back home while Kevin is sound asleep from exhaustion. Adam, in turn, gets an idea to persuade the government goons to give up Megabyte. Uh, any thoughts here about you know things ramping up in part four? An adult female is with a minor male in a bathroom. Nobody says a thing. What? <laughs> That's what I say. <laughs> no one says a thing watching the show. And then tells her, you got to take the straight, straight jacket off or else you have to do everything. Yeah, there, there's some uh, some interesting... Uh... It's the word brainstorming going on for, for the context of the script. Let's just leave it at that with the whole dream thing. And now this, <laughs> but honestly, I can see a kid trying all of this. And how many times have we seen this done in movies where the kid, I got to pee. Are you going to do anything? Yeah. It seems like the natural way for them to escape. But anyways, um, we're going to warp back to the scientific research lab where Professor Galt brainstorms a way to break the news to Colonel Masters while his cleaning lady distracts him. Some more short scenes happen with Colonel Masters and the aviator goon, and then we transition to Lisa and Adam teleporting in the middle of the basketball court, heading towards the government headquarters where Lisa's mother is being held captive. Moments later, General Damon confronts Professor Galt in his lab to see the teleporter he captured. Professor Galt hesitates to confess megabyte got away while general damon interrogates him back in the streets of london megabyte runs into his recurring bullies from the last two parts but before he's pulverized general damon makes mincemeat of them so he can confront the alleged runaway teleporter turns out general damon's megabyte's dad who knew general damon asks his son if he's in trouble cut to lisa and adam infiltrating the brick building seen before but this time on a much higher floor the aviator goon spots Lisa and trails her, teleporting his observations to Colonel Masters in a nearby meeting room. Adam takes a moment to reflect on the rooftop while looking out the city skyline, and Lisa approaches her apartment to reunite with her mother. She welcomes her with open arms. Cut back to the rooftop where the aviator goon approaches Adam. And back at the apartment, Lisa tries to explain her supernatural powers to her mother, and while she initially reacts in disbelief, Adam's teleportation into the apartment baffles and amazes her convincing her such powers exist. Consequently, due to Adam's sudden disappearance from the rooftop via teleportation, the aviator goon flips over the banister and remains hanging dozens of stories above the ground, hanging from a flimsy flagpole. As Lisa's mother continues to babble in amazement over Adam's entrance into the apartment, Adam spots the remote video bug explaining he'll give himself up in exchange for Megabyte. But due to Colonel Master's orders to cancel the raid, his goons attack the group with tasers leaving Lisa to escape, but stunned by a taser in the process. As expected, she lands in the South Pacific Ocean near the home base, while Adam and Lisa's mom are tied up by Colonel Masters. Keep in mind, Lisa is unconscious right now from being tased, and she's in the water. Back at the spaceship, Kevin takes Lisa back to the core of the spaceship, but is worried Lisa might be dead from the electrical overload from the taser. He cries out in dismay. And that's the end of part four. I really like the story. 
the the jokes are, are sometimes they work sometimes they don't uh most of the time they don't but i do really like the the, the main the story as a whole is flowing really well and it's escalating to a point that's believable given these fantastic situations and i did not see uh damon as being megabytes uh slash marmaduke's father i did not see that coming at all and i was even though the performances aren't fantastic i was getting sucked into this story where that was the first moment when i went oh because I thought they were, which again was what they had intended to do. I thought they were after Megabyte because he was the one who escaped. Nope. I was really surprised by that. And uh, and then you touched on the two of them having a conversation, but that was more in, in the fifth episode. So we'll talk about that when that time right. comes. And uh, I really liked Adam. I really like how he's not wanting to do violence. Uh, I, I know they say that they can't, but it just doesn't seem to be in his nature. He's very much just, I'll do what you want. Please let these people go and, and we'll work this out. Uh, he seems to be very rational, at, at least in this season, he's been very rational. I don't know what he's like in later seasons. I don't want to know. I want to find out. Uh, but I really like, I really, really like Adam and it's, it, it's a cool character. And I like how each one of these characters is beginning to look out for each other and actually being very smart with their decisions. Yeah, it's it's kind of strange when I reflect back upon watching these episodes, but I sense like a familial belonging that all these Tomorrow People characters have, similar mm-hmm. to how the, you know, Space Cases formed as a family that cast. Like, you know, they're all from different worlds, they have different backgrounds, but they share this one thing in common that keeps them going no matter what. And I really enjoy how that develops, particularly with like Adam and Lisa, but also separately uh, Megabyte and Kevin, because they kind of have these parallel friendships forming. And then, you know, here and there we see different combinations of them as they try to like, you know, plan to rescue Megabyte or like get past the the goons. And then it just all uh, amalgamates at the end in part five, as we'll discuss, where they all kind of finally meet together and just share this experience of like, we are the next stage of human evolution. This is great. This is what our powers are. This is what we're going to do. This is, these are the challenges that we're going to have to face time and time again. Let's own this. And we are anamorphs. <laughs> we're not going there. Um, I mean that I didn't read the books. I didn't watch the Nickelodeon series. So say that for another podcast. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of more of a, a niche question, but hopefully you'll you'll be able to answer it. Um, could you could you elaborate on what it was like for you and your co-stars to travel through those tubes leading into the mothership, and also what it was like to be in the ship's core like engine room? Uh, how did that feel compared to the pilot version? Because I know when I saw uh, the pilot, which was a bad dream gets real, it was essentially just like a cave with like a, a weird pole ladder. Yeah. Um, so it was the idea of going through those tubes was exciting. Um, but it basically, I think we were lying on a skateboard and then someone would just pull us very quickly. So you'll notice those shots aren't that long. Um, and then as I said earlier in the, um, earlier in our chat to shoot out of the, 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 um, the outlet, like onto the beach, 
um, they would hold us upside down and just drop us through, drop us through <laughs> the, the hatch. <laughs> right. Um, so it wasn't a particularly comfortable experience, but the idea was fun. And once we got inside the spaceship, that was a bit weird because they built this sort of seesaw thing um, yeah. that we could sit on and hop, hop in. Um, and that was just like being on a massive seesaw, which was, which was quite fun as well, except they'd spin it around and around and around and around and around. And I'm not very good with motion uh -oh. sickness. So yeah. uh, that was really disturbing as well. That's interesting. Cause uh, even though it seems like a big part of the set piece, I only saw it in really one scene where you're like sitting on the chair and you like seesaw down to Lisa to like talk to her about something. And I'm like, Hmm. What purpose does that chair serve? Because there's not like a... Yeah, I think that originally, I think originally it was going to be used to be able, like we were going to have to sit in that to connect with the other, to talk to the other tomorrow people out in the world. I'm not sure if they actually mm. used that shot or not. That was one of the other things between the 70s uh, series and the 90s series. And I think it lacked something in the 90s series is that in mm. the 70s series, the spaceship actually spoke. So the spaceship had a name. Right. It was called Tim... Um, and Tim would would talk to them and and guide them and give them sort of wisdom, uh, and I think that that would have been quite nice to have a voice that would talk to us as well. Yeah, I mean it, it's pretty interesting to have like that ambient like pulsing chanting going mm. on, but since we're not able to understand it, we could only use our own imagination and assumptions of what Adam's yeah. saying to it and back and forth. Whereas like, if it was more like a, a communication or like a command hub, similar to how Zordon was set up in Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, at least we get a sense of, Oh, this is like, you know, their, their wise, you know, mentor mm. speaking down to the tomorrow people, like a, a race of alien Rangers, so to speak, and just giving them tasks of like, you know, tell them what's going on in the world, who their major threats are, what they need to do with their tel telekinetic powers to stop these people and just send them out to go do various missions. I, I feel like if they developed it more in that direction, it'd be quite a, even more competitor than what it already was in uh, the States and the UK and Australia. It's good for, it's good for story exposition and stuff as well. Get the, get the computer to do it. Um, but it was, it was interesting though. The reason that they didn't have the computer speaking is, and this is props to Roger Price is that he wanted to be more environment. It was more around the environment. Like most of the story, I think a lot of the stories were environmentally based as well, um, which was not that done back in the early nineties. So he was quite forward thinking in terms of, what he was trying to do yeah yeah i do notice like a lot of emphasis on like nature as i was watching this whether it's being like mm -hmm. the beach or like just you know scenic foliage shots as we're going through you know certain parts um but anyways yeah I, i'm definitely in agreement with you there oh, oh oh i was gonna say that the something about the technology in tomorrow people like relative to the ship some felt very primal and maybe it just feeds into that of being like this thing that has existed long before us. Um, kind of like this, the spaceships that were seen in Beast Wars Transformers, which is a late 90s series that kind of deals with the orange st origin stories of uh, Transformers and how they interact before like, you know, uh, humans end up evolving on Earth. So they deal with mm. some primates here and there in story development. So it's like, it's an interesting look at like ancient technology becoming modern. We could go even back, we could go and say, because I think Christian Tessier was in this movie as well, which I'm not sure is that would be that excited about me talking about, but I think he was in Battleship Earth as well. And I think that was a similar, <laughs> similar thing happening there as well. 
It, it might be a sci-fi trope at this point where you have some <laughs> sort of ancient lore tying to the present day to like reawaken powers or like, you know, stop a new threat that has, you know, showed up again. <laughs> oh, I, I don't I don't think we asked this before, like directly, but what inspired you to audition for the role as Adam on the Tomorrow People? I was asked to. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> Pretty straightforward, huh? <laughs> wasn't wasn't very inspirational. They they rang and said, "Do you want to audition?" And I said, "Yeah, that sounds fun." So I did. Um, look, people often ask that question of mm. actors, and we don't have like we. If you say no to an audition, you're an idiot. Like, just say yes to everything. The, the hit rate's pretty low. If you get one, fantastic. If you don't, ah, whatever. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I know. I, I'm always curious to hear, like, if there's any stories behind, like, how people got their roles or if they were, like, assigned to something, a different role, and then got this other one. But most of the time, it's just, like, any other job. So... Well, it's interesting. I mean, it was interesting. Roger did say to me, he said, the moment you walked in the room, I knew that you were the character. So even before I had an opportunity to read. So he obviously had mm -hmm. a very strong idea of who the character was. And I happened to um, fit that brief. But with that being said, let's let's conclude this miniseries, shall we? With the origin story, part five. So we open to the final chapter to witness the aviator goon fall off the flagpole and plummet to his death on the ground below, as expected. Adam states to Colonel Masters that he might be able to heal him with his powers. He puts his palms out, and within a moment of moving them across the victim's body, he reawakens, astounding Colonel Masters and reaffirming his belief in his prize. Adam is then taken with Colonel Masters and his goons to an unknown location via car. Back at the seashore ship, Kevin revives Lisa and they embrace. Later at General Damon's mansion, Two officers arrive to investigate the disappearance of Megabyte's friend Kevin, but feeling disrespected, the young accomplice runs back upstairs. The officers report their findings of the wanted child to Professor Galt, who proclaims to Gloria that it's time to get him back ourselves. Meanwhile, General Damon explains to his son that he was covering up for Megabyte to prevent him from being taken away by the police. Megabyte's father continues to explain how his Department of Scientific Intelligence is looking for teleporters and they don't want their specimens in the clutches of the wrong hands. Lisa and Kevin telepathically contact Adam in attempts to catch up on the situation, but Colonel Masters instructs Adam not to communicate with them mentally, but aloud so he can hear, and also to ensure the safety of Lisa's mother, who is tied up. Colonel Masters then suggests Lisa teleport at the school where this whole mess started so they can rendezvous and make a deal to bring her under their custody. Back at the Damon household, General Damon proposes what happens next, knowing that Megabyte tied to thwart his father's entire operation to capture and understand the nature of these teleporters. Megabyte suggests, well, the good guys win. <laughs> Adam and Lisa reunite on stage with Colonel Masters and his goons present. Adam steals a Y from the Hollywood sign to hold up as a means of defense against any potential attacks from the Colonel, which I personally find hilarious. <laughs> Meanwhile, Professor Galt and Gloria try to capture Megabyte by breaking into the Damon estate in the middle of the night. But General Damon points a gun at them, threatening he'll shoot unless they unhand his son. In that moment, Megabyte falls off the balcony and teleports to the seashore ship to reunite with his buddy Kevin. Turns out he was a teleporter after all. Who knew? <laughs> uh, any thoughts on that before we continue? 
I did not call the dad being the dad, uh, the the villain being dad. I absolutely called uh, Megabyte becoming a tomorrow person. Uh, I I saw that coming a mile away from the very first episode, and I kind of would have preferred that he stayed non-power. Uh, kind of was like the Xander of Buffy, if you will. Uh, he even though he didn't have powers, he was still a he was a very pivotal part of the main group uh, and really helped them to stay human and relatable. And he saw them for who they were and was kind of the heart of the whole thing. And I would have liked to have seen Megabyte become that, uh, even though he, he, it started off with him being rather selfish. He became incredibly selfish, selfless very fast, especially at the end of the second episode. And it would have been great to have seen what a powerless person how important they would have been to this group who all had supernatural abilities so that that would have been cool but as it is i i thought it was fine uh but i did really like um uh i really liked the father-son conversation uh i liked how they took kind of a trope and flipped it on its head uh, at Nickelodeon at the time was very much about kids versus grown-ups. Uh, as their programming, as they got new programming, it became more familial. But for a long time, especially uh, mid-80s to mid-90s, it was very much kids versus adults. And this, I think, was the first mm-hmm. time that we really had started to break some of those barriers and then the whole conversation that you were talking about with the dad and and the son well we're on polar opposites of this what are we going to do and it wasn't yelling at each other and starting a fight with each other and oh you're a bad person it was a okay you're still my son and i'm gonna protect my son and you see him do that the rest of the season or the rest of this mini season uh, and I really liked that. Me too. It really, really brought the heart of the show in the forefront about this being about caring about humans, no matter what involvement they have in, in, in the story. Um, I really liked their dynamic and it really made me think that, Hey, just because you're on opposite sides of the team doesn't mean you have to change your attitude toward each other because, you know, at the end of the day, you're family and you look out for your family no matter what. And it was really like, I don't even know how to describe it. It just felt really good to see Megabyte teleport with his father mm-hmm. and I believe Kevin to the, the site of the final showdown as like, he's the ally he's helping them out because he's got all this inside knowledge to kind of face off against the, the big bad that we confront, but we'll get to that in a couple of moments. Um, so I, I basically, I just want to say, I like where it's going and I like how it touches upon all these different heartfelt notes to keep things grounded in reality and also relatable instead of just being about, you know, sci-fi teleporters with superhuman powers. Uh, let's see, where did we leave off? Lady Mulvaney in the meantime, prepares for the delivery of Adam and Lisa to her possession from Colonel Masters at a secure location. As it appears to have a secret deal going on beyond what the DSI is conducting in this miniseries. Back at the seashore, Kevin mentions that he and Megabyte are considered tomorrow people, then are sucked into the ship promptly down the entrance tube. <laughs> Kevin elaborates on how the government set a trap for Lisa and Adam, 
and what to make of the whole situation with Megabyte's dad being in charge of the whole operation. Um, speaking of dad, General Damon demands Megabyte be found and returned to him. Ironically, Megabyte and Kevin teleport back to his location where Megabyte introduces his friend and mentions to his father how Colonel Masters plans to kill Lisa's mother, regardless of whether the teleporters are in their possession. General Damon is displeased with the Colonel's hidden agenda and they decide to go after her or after him and rescue her. Kevin uses a clairvoyant power of his to spot a helicopter approaching a field. General Damon teleports with his son and Kevin to the rendezvous spot in the field. General Damon attempts to stop the exchange of teleporters to Lady Mulvaney, armed with an assault rifle, but her massive assault rifle persuades him to disarm himself. Uh, apparently, General Damon is familiar with his wealthy foe, and it's revealed Colonel Masters has been working for her all along. The Iron Woman... Yeah, dun-dun-dun! The Iron Woman proclaims it would be worth billions to use teleporters for war purposes against other countries, and that she must have them as a valuable commodity. Suddenly, Kevin bum-rushes into the scene, shouting to the others to teleport as he grabs Lisa's mother and teleports them away. Adam and Lisa follow his lead, and Megabyte wrestles Colonel Masters for his gun to threaten him. General Damon joins his son and throws away the gun, while Lady Mulvaney attempts to snipe the duo on the beach from her stealthy helicopter. Megabyte and his father wait through the water as they arrive on shore, having teleported to safety to, you know, that familiar shore we all know and love, uh, where the spaceship resides, as a group all gather to celebrate their victory in foiling Lady Mulvaney's plans. The villainous disappears, and all the Tomorrow people unite on the shore, leaving things wide open for what will happen next in the next miniseries arc. <laughs> and that's that. <laughs> what do you think about that? I really liked this ending. It, it felt really earned. Um, I really liked the different villains. Uh, essentially, you have three villains, but one of them is mm -hmm. kind of the... Um, he's he's the anti-hero i guess is more appropriate right uh, he, he's an opposing threat at one point and then he's your ally the next but you have two other pretty big villains and again the kid megabyte pointing a gun at colonel masters you're not gonna see that on nickelodeon ever again and they really dealt with some really heavy themes for the show that you don't see in kids programming. Even then you didn't see them. Nickelodeon did not have deep themes like this. Uh, even on, are you afraid of the dark? They didn't go this hard this many times, every episode. And so quickly every, too. every episode, they were dealing with heavier themes every single time and, and amplified it, which they should, because it's all one big story arc. Uh, I've never seen a Nickelodeon show go as hard as this one did. I mean, I guess that's what makes it stand out above the rest of the shows at the time. Like, as we mentioned at the very beginning of the episode, you know, you got your typical, you know, comedy and then you got your variety sketch show and then you got your, you know, irreverent animation. Um, but then you got the Tomorrow People, which, you know, it, I think it's grounded in a lot of reality mm -hmm. for a sci-fi show, it is. and it really, it really makes you think about a lot of these situations. If you're in these kids' shoes, like what you would do if you had these types of powers and understanding the responsibilities and the threats that come along with them, it's great to see 
stuff like this, even if it seems a little jarring that it has all this intensity packed into it because it's, it's a diamond in the rough. This like never happens. And I think when it's done well, it, it, has like a special type of value that people can extract from and learn from it rather than replicate it. Like if megabytes holding a gun, he's, he's thinking about the ramifications of being able to end someone's life in that moment, but he doesn't have the heart to because deep down we know he's a tomorrow person and he doesn't want to harm people. And really he's just in tune with his, his sense of compassion, like the rest of them are, which makes him one of them. And also a moment for us, the viewer to realize that we too are human we should think about these situations too if we were to come across dealing with weapons and people who want to do wrong by us. With that being said, I think it's a great start to what's to come in the future when we approach when we when we get to that point where we do episode reviews of, you know, Culex Experiment, Monsoon Man, uh, Ramsey's Connection and Living Stones. Uh, so I'm gonna give this I mean <laughs> Based on my like positivity nearing the end, I want to say I want to give it a splat salint, but up until this point before, I was leaning more towards a B because some of the performances I didn't like, there were some like slow parts here and there. Some of it felt kind of cheesy, but I can't help but not like this for what it is. So I might I might have to bump it up to an A. I, I was going to give it an A as well. Uh for the same reasons uh the i really love the story and the effects too that they really for the budget they had they really did a lot with the spaceship and the visual effects too and it was impressive for 1992 bear in mind for television this is like are you afraid of the dark caliber of special effects even more so like especially with the the teleportation you know effect that's like all you know, snowy with lightning. That was pretty, pretty groundbreaking. And yes, the, the performances were not all masterful. Uh, I really, I loved all the adults. I thought they were fun. Uh, even the ones that were even Colonel Masters and, and Damon uh, for what they were, for what they were supposed to be. I thought they worked just fine and I really enjoyed them. And I thought they were more believable characters than some of the other ones. But uh, I, I, and I, I loved the, the the core group. I loved, I, I didn't really care for all the jokes. Then there was a, a lot of jokes. I would have liked them if the, if the timing was better. Uh, that's really what killed the jokes. Um, I, even, even the mom, Lisa's mom, the, their banter was, it was, it was so close. It was so close, but it wasn't quite there. But take take the comedic stuff aside and take the, the poor performances aside. You still have a really good effects, heart-driven drama for kids. And I really enjoy it for those reasons. I enjoy it a lot. And I'm pretty sad that I missed this out when it came out on Sundays. But um, I don't think I would have enjoyed it when I was a kid because it's so because it would take a minute uh, to it, it is a bit of a slow burn especially if it was coming out weekly and uh, i probably would have lost interest within the week um just because that's the way my brain was but as an adult i really really like the show yeah i feel like if you come come into the tomorrow people with like a mature mindset that's able to handle you know something slightly slower paced um than typical shows on nickelodeon i think it it, it pays off in the end. Like, 
you know, the story is very engaging. It's very thought provoking. You know, there's always a ton of action to keep you invested. So even if, even that's enough to overlook, um, you know, some of its flaws that are on the side uh, with the acting and the pacing. I would say if you enjoy the secret world of Alex Mack, you would enjoy the tomorrow people. I agree. Yeah. They're, they're kind of in that similar sci-fi realm where it's like, the characters have these powers all of a sudden and they don't know what to do with it and who they should avoid or make their allies. But part of the fun is finding out who they interact with and, you know, form alliances and face enemies and learn new powers and stuff like that along the way. I mean, it's just the journey that makes it relatable. To recap, we both give this an A. I bumped my B up to an A because I think it deserves it. And we had a fun time talking about it. One of the things that really made the show so special uh was that the tomorrow people were not they were incapable of violence at least within the first series uh what what did you think about that turn of violence or kids can't do violence in this kind of a setting yeah i liked it the thing that was a challenge for the tomorrow people particularly in the 90s reboot was that we were pretty indestructible in terms of like, if there was a threat, we'd just zap off somewhere, you know, we'd be able to go away. So to find ourselves in, you know, with some, uh, I guess, some things that we were unable to do, some, some, um, something that bound us into a particular location was really good. I would always um, put forward to the writers that we needed to have more issues like that. So I would say, look, let us, let's, I don't know, let's get a, a weird virus and we'll lose our powers for a little while. Or um, maybe, you know, we'll need to have, we'll need to wear a belt or something after this virus spreads through. And I remember saying another one, it would be really nice if there were a group of kids that were, um, that were developing at the same rate as us that were kind of like the evil tomorrow people. So then we, we had um, equal powers would have been interesting. Yeah, like doppelgangers or evil twins. Yeah, that would be interesting, or like a rival group that somehow. Yeah, I wanted to play that. I wanted to play the evil guy as well. That would have been fun, <laughs> right? Or, or you know, you can have like here, here's good Adam. Yeah, you know, with like his long hair, and then here's bad Adam. He's got like the mustache, or maybe he's got short hair. Just some slight variation that yeah. makes you you know, watching at home that, oh, that's the good one and that's the bad one. <laughs> the moustache at that time would have been a push because, you know, it's taken me a long time to be able to grow facial hair. Well, you're looking great in it now. <laughs> I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have like a specific most enjoyable moment or most challenging moment of shooting during the origin story that comes to mind? I can't remember if it was the origin story, but in the Tomorrow People, there were a lot of night shoots. <laughs> Oh yeah. So um, shooting, you know, at three o'clock in the morning uh, can, can be a little, little tedious sometimes. But um, no, I, look, I don't know if it's just my personality, but I tend to just remember what I remember seems to be the positive side of things. I don't remember too much, too many negative things. You're you're right in line with us, my friend. Usual last uh, question that I have, just because I like to pick brains. Uh, was there any big takeaways was there any big lessons there or something that you learned doing the tomorrow people that you were able to take with you for the rest of your career well it was the first time that i'd played a lead in a series so just understanding the workload that is involved with that 
and the responsibility to sort of set the tone. Um, so that was something that I, I learned and I took with me. But um, taking things away, this is just to make you feel quite jealous, Alex and Brad. <laughs> Um, when it came time to uh, go to the States and do a little bit of press around the Tomorrow People, um, they allowed me to go into the Nickelodeon uh, goodie bag uh, cupboard um, where they just have all of the Nickelodeon stuff, all of the slime and the money boxes. And, the, and they said, take whatever you want. <laughs> oh. So I got a lot of Nickelodeon stuff. I don't know where it is now. It's around somewhere. But. If if I were you, I would have stolen one of the Super Toy Run uh, shopping carts and just be like, <laughs> yeah. I'm taking this with me back to Australia. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, I never got to go. To, I wanted. I never got to go to, what's the big awards that Nickelodeon had? Uh, I don't know. Kids' Choice Awards. There. The Kids' Choice Awards. I would have liked to go to that, get a little bit of slime. That would have been fun. Yeah, totally. Even win one of those orange blimps. No, but I do have an orange blimp. Well, I've got a cookie jar orange blimp. Oh, nice. That's so cool. Yeah. Which I took from the cupboard when they told me I could go into the cupboard. <laughs> and you got the cookies in it too, right? <laughs> no cookies. Oh, there was cookie-less, uh, oh, which was disappointing. disappointing. Yeah. Yeah, there, there were a few Nickelodeon shows that once they they didn't really integrate them very much throughout the rest of the, of the other Nick properties, like Welcome Freshman and My Brother mm -hmm. and Me. They didn't really do anything with them, and, and obviously Tomorrow People being one of them. There was big talk when Nickelodeon Films started, which was around that time. They were, there was talk at that time of making a Tomorrow People film to make a live action film. And then I think that they decided to make, was it Rugrats or something? They made, they, they went and did more animation, I think. Now, I found, I found this in my cupboard um, before. Oh, oh no way. That's amazing. Perfect for, for this episode. Wow. Wow. That's so cool. I was actually going to ask if they gave you any like special props or if you took anything away after shooting from the origin story. I mean, aside from the <laughs> clapboard, but that's, that's an amazing relic and it's in great condition. So I normally, um, your question was whether I got to take anything from the show. Uh, normally I like to steal a little something, uh, <laughs> a little memento, a trinket, a little, a little something. And the thing that I would have taken was that, I don't know if you n noticed in the, I think it was in the first series, we had these little medallions. We all had little medallions. So um, they were the symbols of um, eternity. Uh, and I oh. think uh, some had earrings, some had necklace, some had like on a bracelet or whatnot. And I would have liked to take those, but I think that they had, they were hoping that it would be picked up for another series and they needed to keep them. I don't think I kept anything i probably did but i can't remember i think they were my rollerblades was it did whether was there a rollerblading chase sequence in the first series uh i believe that was in culex experiment or Mons oh, no, it was okay. monsoon man because you're helping the reporter um chase someone down something like that cool well um Thank you very much for being here, Christian. We appreciate you taking the time to uh, share your memories of the Tomorrow People, the origin story with us. Uh, but before we go, uh, Alex, would you like to do a quick round of say what with our guest? Oh, is this like a quiz? It's like a really short five question thing where we basically okay. say a quote from a character from the origin story and you just have to guess the person who said it. We'll give it a go, but I'm not, I'm not sure how I'm going to go. It's just for fun. There, 
there's no like grand prize or anything you're missing out on but uh we'll send you some cookies to go in the cookie jar yes thank you <laughs> all right roll the jingle for say what say what say what say what say what all right so christian and alex are gonna play this segment of say what while i read off the questions and for those who don't remember the segment basically what we do is we pick handpick quotes from the episode that we review and they have to guess who said them and the person with the most points at the end wins so starting off let's see are we working get- is there like a buzzer system going alex have you got a buzzer noise uh, i i don't but if you think of it i'll let you take it okay you can ra- raise your hand or be like eh, in, into the, your okay. microphone anything like that works for now i'll um, hang on i'll use my tomorrow clapperboard if i can think of it I, you'll hear that <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Alex, do you have some sort of noisemaker? <laughs> no, I'll just eh. Okay, fair enough. All right, question one. Who said it? Teleport, Lisa, teleport. Christian. The character of Kevin. That is incorrect. No, Megabyte, Megabyte. We'll give it to you because you corrected it. One point okay. for Christian. A very good impersonation of Christian Tessier. Can you say that again? Teleport, Lisa. Teleport. That was very good. That that sounded like him. That's great. <laughs> Thank you. Teleport, Lisa. Teleport. Uh, number two. Teleporters, good. That'll be invaluable. Find me a teleporter, and you'll be generously rewarded. <clears throat> Alex, I, I, you you'll have to work with me here. But it was the old lady. I don't know her name, but it was the old lady, I believe. I'll give it to you. Her name is Lady Mulvaney, and fun fact, she was named based off of the executive producer for this and many uh, other 90s Nick shows, Jay Mulvaney, who is sadly passed. But uh, yeah, he was in charge of greenlighting a lot of the major Nick shows back then, so I think it was just a nod to his role. He was, a, he was a really nice guy, and then I think he went off and became quite high up at VH1 as well. Mm-hmm. Teleporters. Good. That'll be invaluable. Find me a teleporter and you'll be generously rewarded. Uh, Question number three, or quote number three, rather. I think we're going to see the boy do a vanishing trick. Christian. Um, I I don't think it's Damon, but I can't remember the character's name that was like the the older... Yep. Why? The older, the... the, the, Like Damon, but older. I can't remember what (laughs) it is. Close enough, because you know who we're talking about. So yeah. I'll give that to you. That is Colonel Masters. Colonel Masters, that's right. Yep. I think we're going to see the boy do a vanishing trick. Quote number four. If it's your dream, then it won't hurt me. Slap me. No, not a stupid little slap like that. <laughs> Hold on. A good hard one like this. Excellent. <laughs> um, and uh, it was Kristen, but I can't remember her character. Lisa. Lisa. Lisa, that's it. Yeah. 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 So if it's your dream, then it won't hurt me. Slap me. Okay. No, not a stupid little tap like that. A good hard one like this. Uh, quote number five, and this is the final one of the say what segment. Uh, hopefully, hopefully the person who's meant to get this point will get this. I forgot to tell you the ship talks. 
I don't think it's a true line because as we've discussed in this episode, the ship didn't really talk. It made deep humming noises. And the person that said that was someone that would go on and, you know, just have such an illustrious career. Um, he is probably one of my favourite actors. Um, I've given it away. It's a male. It's a male. Um, one of my favourite actors. Uh, he, as a person, I feel like he brings communities together um, across the world, uh, from the United Kingdom uh, to the United States to Australia. And his name is Christian Schmidt, and he played the role of Alex Newman. I've got to tell you, the ship talks. Ding, 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 ding. That's it. We have a winner. Woo! Cue the camp fanfare. You win with four points to Alex's one. Man, you creamed that. You killed it. <laughs> you did something. <laughs> I, felt, I, felt like I, I felt like I had a little bit of help. <laughs> well, well, we, we try to be as fair as possible. I mean, we're not like Jeopardy or anything, but we <laughs> if you're close enough, we'll give it to you. And that yeah. goes for any of our trivia-based segments. So congratulations, Christian. Thank you very much. I feel very, very proud and very honored to have been here today and to have won the, uh, won the, the prize at the end, the, the award thing. <laughs> which we'll be shipping to you via cargo box over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Operation uh, Dumbo Drop, but like <laughs> for Christian, <laughs> Christian Drop. Uh, all right, so um, do you have anything to plug before we go, Christian? Any projects you're doing currently? Um, no, not, not at the moment. I've, um, you know, bits and bits and bobs happening over the time. I don't know. There's a show that I did recently, not that recently, but a show called Sea Patrol, which I think <laughs> plays in the States. I'm not sure if it does. Um, but yeah, I'll let you know when there is. Yeah. Sounds great. Excellent. All right. Well, it was lovely, lovely chatting with you and, um, good luck with everything. And thank you very much for keeping the memory of the Tomorrow People alive. Thank you, Christian. Truly a blessing to have you here today. See you later, guys. Bye. Well, with that being said, uh, Alex, shall we open our Mona's mailbag? Because I think we have a new letter. We just got a letter. <laughs> we just got a letter. These are for you. This, this letter um, recently came in. is from a newcomer fan named Richard Gallidus. Very nice guy. And he writes, hey, guys. I just wanted to reach out and say I love the channel. I'm a 37-year-old musician living in San Diego, California, but grew up on 90s Nickelodeon and loved the nostalgia of that era growing up as a kid. Are You Afraid of the Dark was my shit growing up, and that's how I found you guys and watched a lot of episodes already. Uh, I loved all 80s and 90s culture growing up, and your channel fits on all the greats. Keep doing what you're doing. I'm glad you guys made a channel dedicated around all this. Richard. Thank you so much, Richard. It means a lot to us that we're drawing new fans who appreciate exactly what we're doing, which is preserving the slime-filled past, a.k.a. the golden era of Nickelodeon for all of you people. It's always fascinating to see like how we connect with people from the farthest reaches of the internet, whether it be on like different social media platforms or through email. But we just want to take the time to say we love you all and appreciate you all who even bother to take the time to watch any of our episodes, even just check us out on like Instagram or YouTube. Um, because, you know, we don't have a lot of resources. We just have a lot of heart. And that's what keeps us going at the end, in addition to your support and your willingness to listen to us. So thank you, Richard. And thank you to all Slimesters and Gatcoids for keeping us going. 
Yes, thank you. Thank you so very, very much. Uh, and, and we have several who like to reach out the comments and share ideas and, and uh, will reach out to us via email like Richard has done. And it just further affirms that there is an audience out there. You guys are liking it and you're reaching out to us, which just motivates us to do it more. So thank you, Richard. And please, if you are listening and you would like to give us some feedback on what you think of the episodes, what some of your favorites were, what you'd like to see us cover, please send us an email. You can send us uh, an email at splatattack2021 at gmail.com. Well said. And some of the best parts of connecting with people through this podcast is that some people like to stick around for a while too. Like uh, our one of our guests from Nick Takes Over Your School too, Kit Lowther, is very active in the comment section for us. So we're very thankful we, we got some you know fans who like to stick around once they're you know, line, uh, 15 minutes of fame is over, but you know, we're, we're all about building community here. So it doesn't really matter whether you're on our show or just listening to our show. We're just happy to have you around and say hi. So thank you once again. All right. That leads us finally to the end of the tomorrow people, the origin story. Uh, what do you enjoy most about this miniseries arc based on what we said or what you've watched? Uh, is it the characters, the story, or perhaps, perhaps, the futuristic teleporting action. Whatever's on your mind, you can email us your responses at splatattack2021 at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram at splatattack podcast or even check out some of our episodes and write in the comments on our YouTube channel, splatattack podcast. Uh, additionally, if you want to take the time to, you know, just help build the fandom and support us and take it to the next level, we do offer a Patreon with different tiers. Uh, we recently actually adjusted our Patreon so that I believe our second tier, uh, what is it? Splatterific? It's the blue one. <laughs> That's how you know. Um, <laughs> we, we recently adjusted our tiers so that we gave our access to our bonus episodes to lower tiers who may not have as much money in their budget to support us. So, you know, from the second tier up, you're able to listen to audio only episodes. And then for the higher tiers, you also get the video version as well, which includes a lot of cool special effects and, and what have you. So um, check that out if you're really interested in our show and got a few bucks to spare. Chances are we need it more than Starbucks <laughs> for that for that cup of coffee <laughs> to keep us going as we record this at like two in the morning. Just saying. <laughs> and and yes, it is two in the morning when we are recording this. That's what happens whenever you talk to somebody from Sydney, Australia, which again, we are very grateful for Christian. And Indeed. Uh, and hopefully uh, when we edit this all together, it'll go seamlessly. But we had a lot of technical issues going on this episode. And oh, yeah. he actually had to leave for a while and come back. So uh, again, thank you, Christian, for uh, enduring all that we had happen tonight. It was an honor to have you. So thank you. I agree. Thank you, Christian, for being here with us. Hope to see you again soon. If you'd rather look retro stylish or wear one of our Splat Attack shirts or drink one from one of our custom mugs like this one that I've been drinking through throughout the episode, uh, you can grab one for yourself at our bonfire page. We have basically Splat Attack logo podcast shirts. We got our fake Legends of the Hidden Temple team shirts. And I'm sure we'll throw up a few more designs soon once Alex and I nail some meetings down so we can actually design them. Uh, as you can see, he's wearing the, the Slimester, Team Slimester one. That's his team. I'm Team Gakoy with the lime green and... Uh, fuchsia gack on the shirt so if you like one co-host over the other just a little bit more maybe you want to get one of those and show your pride and shout out the rooftops uh on various social media platforms who's better <laughs>
We all know it's bread. <laughs> nah. That was quite an adventure, learning how to teleport out of harm's way from Great Britain to the beach, wasn't it, Alex? Yes. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next time, Slimesters and Gakoids, when we grab our swim trunks and sunscreen so we can beat up the ocean with Artie and then land an atomic cannonball. So powerful, it blows everyone out of the pool with our first ever episode battle between Pete and Pete's What We Did on Our Summer Vacation and Splashdown. Was it an episode battle exactly? And who will our guest judge be? Hint, we've already had his other half on here before, and this is a topic we are all dying to dive headfirst into. That being said, <laughs> find out next time when both episodes bring the heat for a chance to be crowned King of Summer. Until then, Alex, will you drain the slime tank for us, please? I'm going to go contact Amy telepathically so she can join us for our next Tomorrow People review of the Culex experiment. Aye, aye, good captain. If you need me, I'll be practicing my psychic powers with Adam in the mothership. Sounds good, Alex. Just promise me you won't light me on fire with your pyrokinesis powers like you did last time. No promises. Uh... Note to self, get flame retardant clothes. <laughs> Watch you later. Hey there, Slimesters and Gakoids. Brett here. Christian and Alex already teleported out of the mothership, but I decided to stay behind to announce the winner of Guess That Artifact, which is a Legends of the Hidden Temple exclusive segment that we first premiered in our previous episode, Nick and Josh's Hidden Temple Legacy. Uh, it turns out that our Slimester slash Gakoid Matt Gordon came up with the answer, the metal beard of the Egyptian queen first before anyone else. So thank you so much for submitting your answer, Matt, and getting it right on the first try. Uh, as a result, we'll send you a splat attack mug courtesy of our bonfire page. And if anyone else wants to get in on the action and help us with like building our community and just finding more fun ways to interact with us through this podcast, uh, definitely stay tuned for future Legends of the Hidden Temple episode where we do guess the artifact again. And if you have any suggestions for other segments we can possibly do to increase engagement, let us know at splatattack2021 at gmail.com. Uh, we also actually are doing a collaboration giveaway for Radio Retro's 100-episode milestone. So head on over to Instagram to see details regarding that. Uh, other than that, thank you so much for watching this episode review and bearing with us for all the technical difficulties we experience. And uh, we'll splat you later. I'm going to teleport out of here and hopefully I don't end end up in that pool like Christian mentioned that we've seen so many times during the mini-sode. <laughs> See ya. Reprise the theme song and roll the credits. Hard to believe, folks, but it's time to say goodbye. Nighty-night. Hey, check us out next time for more adventure and another great legend of the Hidden Temple. What will we do till then? Chill for a couple. We'll be back. You're on, Nick. And it was time for the superhero to move on. I declare this meeting of the Midnight Society closed. Bye-bye. Hi, Christian Schmidt here. You know Adam from the Tomorrow People? Well, I'm here to tell you that Nick is every day. Now, you've probably heard that before, but have you ever thought about what it really means? Nick is every day means that Nickelodeon is here for you today, tomorrow, yesterday. <laughs> Not every yesterday. But it's certainly been every day as far back as you and I can remember. And Nick is definitely now, and it's most definitely the future. Just think, 10 seconds ago, this was the future. Nick is every day. Amazing. <laughs>